Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen to us live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. or at any time from the comfort of your computer at www.blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. At Know It All, we have candid conversations about the education issues that impact you and your community and the real-life solutions to education issues that you face every single day. We aim to make you a know-it-all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with expertise in the laws that require equity in public education, regardless of students' background or characteristics. Keep up with me at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. My guest host is the lovely Alexis J. Smith of Entitled to Educate. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Allison. She is a community engagement and parent empowerment specialist. Check her out at EntitledToEducate.com. Today's show is about students living in poverty and education. This is a featured episode on the Blog Talk Radio website. Make sure you follow us at blogtalkradio.com. A recent episode of the PBS show Frontline examined poverty from children's perspective. Let's listen to a clip. In America today, child poverty has reached record levels with over 16 million children now affected. The message is just how we live. You don't get to make choices in how you live. One in 13 Americans is now unemployed, and many children are growing up with little hope for their future. I'm surprised by how things can change so fast. You can go from doing okay to going hungry and on the verge of being homeless again. And we're going to start with numbers 1 through 20. Food banks struggle to keep up with demand, and homeless shelters have long waiting lists, as even middle-income families sometimes lose their homes with just a few days' notice. If the TV can fit in your school bag, you can take it. <laughs> if it didn't fit, you couldn't take it. We ask these children what a life being poor in America really looks like through their eyes. The child said it best, you don't get to make choices in how you live. Educators grapple with a lot in the classroom, administering instruction to students of all races and backgrounds, students with disabilities, and students living in poverty. The difference between students living in poverty and other categories of students is that other students are constitutionally protected in the classroom, at least technically, right? So, in other words, educators cannot discriminate on the basis of race in the classroom, and students with disabilities have to be provided with a free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. Students who do not speak English must be provided with equal access to educational opportunity, But poverty is not a protected class under the law. There is no law that says that students living in poverty have to be protected from discrimination and harassment in school or that students living in poverty must be afforded special services. But achievement gaps between rich and poor students are as persistent or more so than race-based gaps. Students living in poverty often require additional supports, supplemental services, and interventions to realize academic success. Our guest today is Dr. Adrian Williams. Dr. Williams' primary research and policy interests are in poverty and education and the intersection of poverty and race in education. She's most interested in how social institutions through policy and action 
embody societal attitudes toward the poor. Dr. Williams was an assistant assistant professor of education at West Virginia University until recently and is currently an education consultant. Good morning, Adrian. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Allison and Alexis. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, so, Adrian, will you talk through talk through with us a little bit this framework of poverty and education? What does it look like from an educator's perspective? Well, it's really complex, as you can um, probably guess. There are biological, psychological, cognitive factors, among others, that influence how educators must approach their jobs. Hunger and stress influence brain development from well before children are even born and well into childhood. Um, as adults, you know, we know how food and when we eat and what we had to eat uh, impacts our mood, so there's no mystery what role hunger plays in productivity uh, to just the average person. So the stress of instability, in addition to all of the, the hunger issues, has psychological implications um, as well as physiological ones. And then, finally, after all of this regular human stuff, um, you finally get um, to cognition. So poverty creates barriers to learning long before children are sitting in a classroom. In other words, all of the lofty proclamations of what we can do, it all, you know, all the kind of lofty proclamations about what we can do in schools um, are somewhat fantastical in the presence of child poverty. Uh, we, so the poverty creates a set of barriers that if we don't affect, you know, really interact with them directly, we're really not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So the federal courts, and and coming from a, a legal standpoint, the federal courts have co-opted opportunity in the race context, if you will. Um, they are now scrutinizing voluntary diversity programs for um, discrimination based on race. Um, and, you know, as we all know, there's the case before the Supreme Court right now that will decide whether diversity remains a compelling interest in, in higher education um, will potentially decide that issue. Um, but I actually think that it may be a positive thing that the courts are not charged with protecting low-income students from harassment and from inequitable opportunity because I think this leaves room for grassroots advocates and parents and students and educators to shape a reality that can't be dictated or judged literally by the courts. It also means, though, that the federal government, the Department of Education, and my former colleagues at the Department of Justice have no law to enforce with respect to low-income students. Adrian, do you think this means that there is room for us as a society to creatively address socioeconomic diversity and other opportunities for students living in poverty? I think that's a, a great question. I really appreciate how you frame that, and I've had a number of debates about this with friends and colleagues uh, because I've, I've often wondered whether legal protections for the poor had a place in our society, but I decided to kind of swing completely in the opposite direction and settle on the radical notion that poverty shouldn't have a place in our very wealthy society. So uh, we need to deal with the issue itself instead of trying to figure out how to, um, you know, meet the needs of people who are in a situation that is created by us. Um, that said, I also have to acknowledge that we are rather intransigent on this point, and so we need to think about um, how to approach this. So considering that intransigence, I think, um, specific to your question, there are ways to leverage resources to create better education opportunities for children living in poverty, and there are ways to be creative about it, uh, given um, the kind of barriers we have as 
society to actually addressing the underlying issue. So how do we do that? What are some creative strategies for educators to consider in serving students who live in poverty? Well, um, first we have to kind of, you know, agree on some, some basics. Um, we need to know, we need to acknowledge that educational success, even when it's attainable uh, in high poverty, and I think concentration of poverty is an important thing to look at when it comes to these, when, um, when it comes to institutions. So uh, it's one thing to have poor children in a school. It's one thing to have a poor, it's another thing to have a poor school. So okay. on those occasions when educational success is attainable, we know it's not really sustainable. Um, because the very real challenges of housing, hunger, and health care uh, have a kind of chip away at that success. So this means mm-hmm. that creative people, um, especially in cities, really can consider how to consolidate efforts. Um, so first, you have the community schools approach that has been attempted in a number of places where all of the services a family might need uh, can be found on a school campus. So this mitigates some of the challenges families um, face and could, may, um, although I don't really have enough data to support this, but it could create a sense of community um, that could bolster group efforts to address other community needs, um, which is something I think uh, Alexis uh, is engaged with. And then in the classroom, teachers need to understand what attitudes they have towards the poor in general and how those biases influence how they interact with children and their families. So school leaders need to give some thought to how they interact with families. Um, In the frontline piece you referenced at the beginning of the show, I saw something that broke my heart. Um, I wondered kind of under what circumstances it's appropriate to have all of the poorest kids in the school be called to the office to collect their weekend food supplies, to be called out of class. It's time for you to get your weekend food supplies. Um, I think that demonstrates a major lapse of judgment, given what we know about how cruel kids can be and the way that um, more privileged and powerful kids um, abuse other kids. And by privilege, I don't just mean economics. I mean, there are all sorts of hierarchies that work in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that said, having spent some time in rural West Virginia, I don't think that this approach of community schools and finding ways to be created to consolidate resources geographically can be nearly as effective in rural America, where poverty is a very serious issue. And school consolidation efforts in those areas mean that children have to travel quite a distance away from their home community. And it also means poor parents are having even more trouble reaching services. So um, these kinds of solutions that I have seen at work are more effective in urbanized areas than in rural areas. And rural areas, um, I think, are kind of being left to struggle with this in a way that cities are not. Hmm. Alexis, as Adrian mentioned, you work with parents and families around the country. Um, talk to us a little bit about how parents and families, regardless of whether they themselves live in poverty, experience poverty. Yeah, I um, actually saw an Instagram, child post this morning, um, and it said, what if the cure for cancer is trapped in the mind of someone who cannot afford an education? Mm. You know, and it just, it resonated with me, right? Simple but profound, right? It, you know, it reflects the big picture that, you know, poverty does impact all of us, um, you know, in the ways that, you know, it limits the manifestation of our 
our collective potential of greatness by limiting it in even just one of us. Um, You know, a lot of what Adrian has said this morning, um, you know, just hits home and and makes complete sense to me and I think to, uh, you know, parents everywhere. You know, if we narrow the scope a little bit from the big picture and look at it just, you know, in terms of the stress that poverty causes, you know, even those among us who have, you know, never... Um, who are not now or who have never experienced even a season of, you know, literal poverty, you know, we can all relate to the symptoms of stress, you know, lack of sleep, um, hopeless mindset. You know, it broke my heart as well, Adrian. you know, to hear, um, you know, the, the frontline story lead out with, you know, you don't get to make the choices in how you live. I mean, that that is a hopeless mindset. Um, you know, the tendency to isolation, uh, tendency to... Uh, rash or short-term thinking, you know, to satisfy an immediate need versus a long-term goal. You know, we see these things with, um, you know, lack of parental attention. You know, mommy and daddy are always working. Um, I think that, you know, there's one misconception of poverty that means you're not going to work, (laughs) and that's not the case, Um, not always anyway. Um, You know, lack of patient and empowered parenting. You know, even if time um, is not the issue, you know, what is the quality of that time? You know, where's the motivation and the energy um, in dealing in the stressful situation um, that's represented in, in poverty? And then, you know, on the students' end, um, you know, there's a tendency to self-exclude, you know, even from the free programs and the extracurricular activities. I can imagine that, you know, with the, the cattle call, if you will, to the office to come and get your free lunch, or I mean not your free lunch, but, you know, your, your take-home meal, there may be a handful of kids that just are refusing to get up. You know, they know that they qualify, that there is a need, but there is a pride and there are other social issues that are keeping them from taking advantage, you know, of that that service that the system is trying to provide. And, you know, so even in private and and home-based school situations, you know, no man is an island. You know, the symptoms of poverty um, impact all of us, you know, regardless of our um, our own financial status. And, uh, Adrian, one of my questions to you, you know, as you mentioned, my work with Entitled to Educate, a lot of what we do is conducted with the belief that empowered parents can promote academic and civic success regardless of their own education and financial status. Um, in doing so, we focus on training parents to teach and coach uh, mega skills. And mega skills are, you know, simple. Uh, we're talking traits like confidence, motivation, responsibility, caring, respect, so on and so forth. So my question is, what role, if any, uh, do you see as parent training being a, a strategy to offset the effects of poverty in the classroom? I think there's a lot to be gained uh, from that. I, I know that personally, and I, uh, I tell my, my own personal story a lot, um, we did not grow up with a great deal of resources, uh, my siblings and I. And my mom uh, um, only graduated from high school, but she behaved very much in the ways that really privileged middle-class parents behave when it came to our schooling. Uh, she, and as we look back on it, we wonder, how did you know to do that? And she says, I don't know how I knew to do that. But it was really um, amazing the kinds of choices she made to interact with schools, to ask a lot of questions, to seek out opportunities. And although she wasn't able to do a number of different things at home, uh, she was able to get those resources for us. And I think that helping parents to understand what those resources are, um, I find that the, the characteristics 
of um, really confident questioning of people uh, in power is 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 a is a is a privilege of the middle class, and uh, I think it's something that can be taught. Quite frankly, that mm-hmm. if you think your child is being mistreated, or if you think there are resources out there that you're not getting, if you just suspect it's possible, you can ask those questions and you can press to get answers. So just you know, pushing parents or helping parents to understand how to ask questions right. uh, is a, a really important first step. The other thing in training, I think, is the idea of helping people understand how to work collectively. Um, we don't have communities. Well, there's a, there's been this kind of push against kind of community schooling with all sorts of um, choice programs and things like that. But the fact of the matter is, we live in a segregated society. <laughs> so, um, and people tend parents to. to still tend to send their kids to the school that's closest. So um, I think that this idea of helping people to think about how to work collectively and pull all of their skills and resources together to help their children as a community is something that could also be um, affected during, um, through training. Adrian, I've heard you say that Essentially, although educators are superheroes in many respects, and my mom is is one of those superheroes, certainly, we cannot impose burdens on teachers that belong to society at large. So we, we can't force teachers to fix poverty. It's not their job. And extra job duties like home visits that are designed to meet parents where they are don't necessarily belong in teachers' to-do pile. Will you expound on that? Yes, I will, and I'm very happy that I get to put on my radical hat. Okay, so, <laughs> part of this situation is that we have this we have a lot of national mythology, but the national mythology that's most relevant to me is this idea that schools are this great leveling institution, um, and holding on to that mythology has contributed to why we fail poor children in schools. Far too many of us believe that we can send children of all social and economic origins into these places called school and receive the same version of American success in return across the board. Um, so as is, you know, the case with mythology in general, that's irrational and ridiculous. Furthermore, we we use the same words to describe schools all over the place, all over the place, right? and we've convinced ourselves that there is something called school that's universally the same. So all of the variables of what's going on in this school, all the variables of what's affecting the children who are in these schools are different. Uh, And when it comes to children in poverty, teachers um, really, we expect teachers to be able to just make the decisions, you know, about what they're going to be teaching, or not anymore because they're told what they're to teach these days, but that they're supposed to just somehow make students learn. But given what we know about who students are, these actual human beings who come to class weighted down by issues that full-grown adults couldn't function on, can't learn under, we can't expect teachers to overcome those obstacles. So if we think about it in terms of the kind of schooling effects research that we um, talk about or that we don't really talk about, that Schools are responsible for kind of less than half of of schooling outcomes. Um, More than half of that comes from factors that are beyond the control of schools. And I am stunned regularly that teachers uh, have not organized themselves 
to kind of throw down the gauntlet and demand that child poverty be eradicated, uh, especially now that teachers are being told that they are fully responsible. And, you know, people argue about whether or not this is what policies actually say. But teachers feel, many of them, that they are being told that they're fully responsible for student outcomes. Now, don't get me wrong. It, there are teachers out there who should not be in classrooms. And there are teachers that, and I would say that even if we could get teachers to be responsible for, statistically responsible for 70% of the variation in student outcomes, um, okay. even though now it's about 20%, um, I would say put it all on the line, fire wholesale those people who aren't doing their job. But there are all sorts of shortcomings in teacher recruitment, preparation, induction, professional development that even that 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 will contribute to student failure. But solving all of those problems would still leave a significant gap in student outcomes. So I find this focus on school and teachers as responsible for schooling outcomes um, laughable in a way, uh, in the absence of a focus on poverty itself. Um, that teachers as professionals have a job. We don't expect any other profession to go out into the world and solve the problems that contribute to the challenges facing their clients. And I tend to say I like to stay away from the language of markets and clients when it comes to teachers in schools, but in the language of professionals, we don't expect that of any other group. We expect that from teachers, and teachers um, and schools accept that responsibility and continue to fail. Uh, I think they should reject responsibility. I think they should find a way to say, no, this is not my job. Uh, and if we're going to get it right, then all of us have to take responsibility. So, Adrian, let me jump in, um, kind of pivoting from the reference to, you know, business and clientele, because I, you know, manage that in my, my alter ego professional life as well. But I do think um, that there is a balance that needs to be struck. I don't think that, you know, any one end of the spectrum can say, well, that's not my job, because in the middle we have the children suffering. I mean, that, that's where we are right now. Um, and so my question is that acknowledging that there are multiple challenges, limitations, barriers, some that are due um, and some that are undue, let's pretend for a moment that we are able to uh, overcome these barriers and that school districts are empowered um, in terms of, you know, organized management and, you know, budgetary allocations that allow for them to provide what's called poverty reduction or poverty management services to um, families um, by way of services offered through the school. From your um, education practice perspective, do you think that these empowerment programs would do better to address the family as a unit or to um, more focused their services and their approach by separating the programs into tracks for, you know, different, let's say, for the female and, and male role models in the family? Wow. There was a lot in what you said even before the question. So, so um, but to speak directly to the question, actually, let me go back, um, about this idea of the, the children suffering. There is this issue, and I think, and um, Allison has heard me talk about this before, that we have had, I think, the, our civil rights movement um, was a prime example of how at some point sacrifices are made and children are damaged, and that's really painful. And you look back on the sacrifices that children had to make during the civil rights movement, all of the integration work, the busing work, the 
uh, marches, the children's um, uh, crusade and the arrest of children, um, it's horrible to say. It sounds ugly to say. But sometimes children do um, end up suffering when you actually have a goal that you have to fight for. And it's horrible to think about that. But the fact of the matter is as long as people continue to fall back on that, then um, nothing actually changes. There's no press in society to actually address the problem. Um, so we can talk more about that later. But in terms of what, it, it, given if the resources were there, I think that family units, and I think that even more broadly than your basic nuclear family, which um, isn't really a reality and I don't think it's ever been a reality in the world, <laughs> um, that extended family support. Right, that structure. Mm -hmm. a, would need to be a, a part of it, right? So um, in my own life, again, when I walked home from school in elementary school, my mom was at work. I walked to my aunt's house. I sat with my grandmother all afternoon. Um, I, I had... Uh, a lot more structure, I think, than the other kids I was um, who were coming home um, in the afternoon. But I, I, I wasn't with my parents uh, directly. Uh, sometimes I went over to where my sister and brother, when they were infants, were being um, babysat, right? So um, there were lots of people, lots of adults um, creating the community uh, where I lived. So uh, if it were possible, then that would extend the role of schools you know, well into uh, actually community supports as opposed to individual family supports. Now, I have a lot of issues about gender roles that would make it really hard for me to say, sure, we should have, you know, gender-based, you know, role modeling things. So I would probably never really sign up for that mm -hmm. in the same way. Uh, at the same time, I did eight years of single-sex education, so I do understand <laughs> like the, that there are distinctions uh, to be made. But I think it's the it's the Extended family network, not just uh, kind of what people, whatever is, is the immediate family supports. Right. Adrian, I think it's undeniable that socioeconomic status and race are inextricably linked. Um, more than six billion dollars, billion with a B, was spent on the 2012 campaigns. Two billion dollars of that on the presidential race. At the same time, though, the black and Latino poverty rate is twice that of whites. This is why socioeconomic status, I think, is often used as a proxy for race in school admissions programs. Do you think that's the right approach? Of course it isn't. <laughs> uh, race tells one story. They tell the story of proportion. Actual head counts tell a different one. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's no way to ensure that blacks and Latinos would fare well in a race-neutral approach to a racial problem, given the sheer numbers of whites in the U.S. Uh, because mm -hmm. although the, the kind of complexion of the United States is changing, uh, whites are still very much the majority in the U.S., uh, which means that proportionally speaking, there are far more white people numerically than there are people of color. Uh, the same thing um, with, you know, in admissions policies, right? So even if you want to say we're going to focus on this income group, there are, there are within that group there are far more white people who are going to benefit from that. Affirmative action is a primary example. The face of um, all the kind of the marginalization, if you think of uh, just about anything, employment, um, housing, all those kinds of things, 
is white and female generally in the United States. The face of poverty is white and female if you really just look at the head count. So focusing on poverty in a race-neutral way um, is not the same thing as trying to solve something that is fundamentally about race. So if it's fundamentally about race, we need a racial solution. If it's about poverty, we need to focus on the issue of poverty. Now I say this with a number of caveats. Um, that we need to also recognize that as a nation with a deep legacy of racism and a not-so-distant past of legalized racial discrimination, um, uh, we could racialize poverty eradication very quickly. Like, we could racialize anything, but we need to understand that if there's a racial, if we identify the root cause of a problem as racism, we need to address that. If the problem, we cannot use a proxy for the root cause um, issue. We have to address the issue directly. Um, so Unfortunately, we are almost out of time. We have, have about a minute left. Um, I want to thank you, Adrian, so much for joining us. Dr. Adrian Williams is an education consultant and practitioner with extensive expertise in poverty and education. You can find her on LinkedIn. Thank you again for joining us, Adrian. Thank you for having me. And I'm going to invite right now Adrian to to write a blog post at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Um, I think we didn't have a chance to get to one of the most crucial questions, which is how we can make sure that we are respectfully treating students and families living in poverty, but also respectfully treat the subject of poverty. So I, I certainly will invite her to get into that in a blog post. Um, thank you again to our audience for joining us today, and thank you, Alexis, for, for co-hosting today. You are officially, officially certified know-it-alls on the subject of poverty and education. Have a wonderful week.